Welcome to This Is Your Body, the podcast for students of the human body or for those who are just morbidly curious. My name is Dr. Bill. In this episode, our topic is viruses and vaccines. Power can be held in the smallest of things. This is a quote from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic novel, The Lord of the Rings. Viruses, one of the tiniest organisms known to humankind, have frequently changed the course of human history. And although the current global pandemic is not our first time to the rodeo, over a century has elapsed since humanity was last so utterly embroiled in a war with a tiny viral nemesis. I think that a look at the natural history of viral diseases can help illuminate our current context. I'd therefore like to start with a journey back through time and chat with you about some of the viruses that have impacted humanity and how our understanding of the biology of viruses has evolved. Viruses have probably been circulating through people at least as far back as Neolithic times, or about 12,000 years ago. Not surprisingly, that is roughly when humans began living in larger communities, and in so doing provided reservoirs or hosts able to sustain the transmission of viruses. Physical signs of presumed viral infections have been found dating back to the 3rd century BCE. Skin lesions closely resembling smallpox pustules, a viral disease, have been identified in Egyptian mummies. The first written description of a viral disease, which again was probably smallpox, comes from China in the 4th century AD. But when did we first ascribe smallpox, measles, and other diseases to viruses, which could not initially even be seen? This mystery started to unravel back in 1757, when Dr. Francis Holm was able to demonstrate that a viral disease that's still common today, namely measles, was in fact bloodborne or was connected to something in blood. Leap forward nearly 150 years to 1901, and that is when Dr. Walter Reed, yes, that Walter Reed of the famous American Medical Center, discovered that a filterable agent causes yet another viral illness named yellow fever. So over a century ago, it seemed clear that something very small, smaller than bacteria, was in blood that could cause certain diseases. Further cementing this idea was the work of a German physician named Dr. Robert Koch, who won a Nobel Prize in Medicine for research linking specific microorganisms to specific diseases. About 30 years were to elapse before the invention of the electron microscope, which gave scientists the chance to first visualize what viruses might actually look like. And just before World War II, Drs. Wendell Stanley and Max Laufler determined that the viruses they were studying were composed of proteins and nucleic acids, and the latter is the stuff that DNA and RNA is made of. Today, we of course know considerably more about the structure and biology of viruses. And as of this telling, there are well over 200 species of viruses that infect humans with many different strains. So what does a virus look like? At their most basic, they are stunningly simple. A little bit of genetic code in the form of either DNA or RNA wrapped up in a protein shell. Take, for example, the norovirus, that pesky bug which causes the stomach flu. Within its protein shell, called the capsid, is a short strand of RNA, which are sequences of specific nitrogenous bases linked by a sugar phosphate backbone. 
Together, the shell and the nucleic acid are called the nucleocapsid. And, a little bit more vocabulary here, a single virus is called a virion. So, they're pretty simple and tiny. How tiny? Well, it works out that humans are over 4 million times larger than the largest virus. And while most viruses are fairly simple, some can get a bit more complex. The human adenovirus is polyhedral. Others, like bacteriophages, which are viruses that infect bacteria, look to me like lunar lander modules. Our current pandemic nemesis, the SARS-CoV-2 or coronavirus, so named for its corona or halo of spike proteins, in addition to a nucleocapsid, also has an outer membrane surrounding it. This membrane is a lipid bilayer, not unlike the lipid bilayer that surrounds our own cells. At the core of the SARS-CoV-2 virion is a small sequence of RNA, and only a single strand, that dictates all of the activities that the virus engages in. For a better understanding of how viruses work, I think we need to back up a bit and review what is called the central paradigm of biology. That is, genetic information from a cell or organism's genome is encoded in the sequence of different nucleotides in DNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid. This information in DNA is decoded or transcribed into ribonucleic acid, or RNA. And we think of RNA as the message, which is then translated into proteins. Proteins are the building blocks of life and include structural components and the enzymes that make life possible. Technically not alive, viruses cannot reproduce themselves and are inert outside of a cellular host, be that human, insect, or plant. The modus operandi of any virus is somewhat like that of a thief. Break into or gain access to a cell, hijack its molecular machinery to make copies of itself, and then make an escape. The viruses we've spoken about thus far contain a single strand of RNA, and they utilize the biosynthetic machinery of the cell to make more viral proteins. However, and this is a pretty big however, most cells do not have the right enzymes to make copies of the viral RNA. And remember, this is important. The virus has to make copies of its own genome. The solution? Well, it's both fiendish and clever. RNA viruses either have genes for something called RNA polymerase, which makes copies of RNA from RNA, and or they carry RNA polymerase proteins inside the capsid. Another type of RNA virus is the so-called retrovirus. These are double-stranded, meaning one sequence of RNA is paired with its corresponding complementary sequence. Retroviruses are so named because they contain an enzyme called reverse transcriptase, and this transcribes the RNA carried by the virus back into DNA. This is actually the reverse of the basic paradigm we've just spoken about. Usually, DNA is transcribed into RNA, which is translated to protein. So here we are going backwards in a sense, and this newly synthesized DNA gets inserted into the genome of the host cell, which then can translate the viral genes along with its own. There are several families of retroviruses, including a group known to be oncogenic or cancer-causing. And I'm sure you've heard about one other member of the retrovirus family, and that is the HIV, or human immunodeficiency virus, which we'll talk about a bit more a little later. Other viruses, such as the herpes or cold sore virus, 
have a genome encoded into DNA, which, once released into its cellular victim, can be transcribed into RNA and translated into protein. Usually, these viruses get the cell to do most of the dirty work. So I've simplified the viral life cycle somewhat, okay, but a lot, but hopefully you get the picture. And rather than dwell on more specifics regarding viral life cycles or try to catalog the array of viruses, let's focus instead on what has made some viruses the source of morbidity or illness and mortality for humanity over the millennia. And eventually talk about what humanity has done to wrestle with this tiny enemy. We'll begin with why some viruses make us more ill than others. The term virulence denotes the ability of a pathogen such as a virus to cause illness or death. And virulence depends on a number of things, but including the ability of a particular virus to evade body defenses, infect, and ultimately be released after it replicates itself. All of these abilities must be encoded in the viral genome or the repertoire of genes it carries. What is so surprising is the fact that viral genomes are actually pretty simple compared to that of their host cells. As for why viruses make us sick, most often it's a matter of wearing out the cells that they infect through the sheer metabolic burden viruses impose as cellular resources are consumed for the virus's own ends. The virulence of the virus is also tied to the range of hosts it can infect, as well as how easy the virus can be transmitted from an infected person to another host. One factor that determines the range of a virus, that is, what cells it can infect, is the ability of that virus to attach to a cell and gain entry. Most viruses are relegated to one species of animal, say humans, and only a few types of cells. Others, like the seasonal influenza virus, such as H1N1, is what I would call a more promiscuous virus. That is, it has a really broad variety of cells that can attach to. The magic is in how viruses are able to do this. Have you ever wondered what the H and N stand for in H1N1? H is for hemagglutin, a type of outer protein that can bind or attach to another molecule. In this case, it's sialic acid. And sialic acid is a type of sugar that's found on target cells. The numbers, such as 1, 2, and so on, represent subtypes of the hemagglutinin molecule, of which there are at least 16. The problem for us is this. Many different types of cells have sialic acid on the surfaces, and this makes them vulnerable to attack by the influenza virus. As for what the N in H1N1 stands for, and it's the molecule neuraminidase, which is another sugar, and it plays a role in the virus's ability to escape the host cell once it's taken over the cells and made copies of itself. Adding insult to injury is that each flu season, the influenza virus can become subtly altered, and this is something known as antigenic drift. And this often makes it difficult to know what particular vaccine may be effective. But more on vaccines in the second installment of the series. The virus that is pretty much in everybody's mind these days, SARS-CoV-2, is a single-stranded RNA virus that has so-called spike proteins, and these give the halo-like corona for which the virus is named. The spike proteins are what enable the coronavirus to bind to an enzyme called ACE2, 
which is short for angiotensin converting enzyme 2. Now, ACE2 is found on many cells, and the spike protein can be thought of as a pick which jimmies the lock, allowing it to get into cells, particularly cells of the respiratory system. And here's an interesting aside. ACE is an important regulator of blood pressure, and you may have heard of drugs used to treat hypertension, such as the ACE inhibitors. And we talked about some of these in podcast two. Another consideration is how easily a virus gets from one host to another. In some cases, viral spread requires direct contact, and this is the case with the herpes virus. Others, like the hantavirus, which is harbored by mouse, becomes airborne in dust. The common cold viruses, which are typically rhinoviruses, and as well are members of the coronavirus family, can either be spread through droplets released by a sneeze, or may be transferred when a sneeze droplet lands on another surface and is picked up by another host. Surfaces on which virions can linger are referred to as fomites. So, how long can a virus remain infective on a fomite? This really depends on the surface and the environment. The virus that causes COVID-19, which is the disease that's caused by SARS-CoV-2, may last a few days, whereas most flu viruses remain infectious for only 24 hours. That said, coronavirus has a relatively low transmissibility on surfaces. Remember how, at the start of the current pandemic, a lot of people, myself included, would bring in groceries and disinfect them? Part of why this practice is not really necessary is that SARS-CoV-2 is what we call an envelope virus. And this means it has that extra layer of membrane around the capsid, and this makes the virus more fragile or susceptible to degradation on surfaces and more vulnerable to agents such as hand soap and sanitizer. Then there are the so-called naked viruses. These lack an outer membrane and are much tougher to destroy. One example of a naked virus is poliomyelitis, or the poliovirus, which can remain infective for several weeks. Still another factor that makes a virus virulent is the type of cell it can infect. For example, polio infects and spreads along nerve fiber pathways because of its ability to infect motor neurons, which in turn control muscles, Polio is known for its ability to cause muscle paralysis. The human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, binds specifically to white blood cells that have the CD4 receptor. And cells which have the CD4 receptor are known as helper T cells. Helper T cells are critically important to the immune response. So if a helper T cell becomes infected and a large number become destroyed, this will compromise an important part of the immune response. And among the many special talents of the Ebola virus is an ability to bind to and destroy platelets, which are involved in clotting. This can lead to severe, uncontrolled bleeding in people suffering from Ebola. Our current SARS-CoV-2 global pandemic is so devastating in part because of the ability of this virus to destroy alveolar cells of the lungs in particular. And what adds insult to injury is the manner in which the coronavirus is also able to unleash what is called a cytokine storm. This is a powerful surge in the body's inflammatory molecules, such as the interleukins and tumor necrosis factor alpha. And the release of these molecules result in a systemic inflammatory response that can affect virtually all organs of the body. In summary, a number of features of a virus can conspire to make it more or less virulent. 
It is also true that not all people respond to a virus in the same way. This may be due to physiological differences between people and their health status. For example, we know that people with underlying comorbidities such as asthma and diabetes are more susceptible to the coronavirus. As well, individuals who are immunocompromised are often more susceptible, but may also reflect the fact that a particular virus may have different strains. Finally, you've likely heard of the roles of animals in transmitting viruses to humans. Often, the animal virus does not cause any harm to their furry or feathered hosts, and biologists believe this is because the virus and animals have evolved together. But sometimes, these viruses make the jump to human hosts, either through a bite or via other body fluids, or even after being consumed by humans. Such pathogens are called zoonotic viruses, and some examples of zoonoses include the bird and swine flus. Whether it is the increasing contact between humans and animals, a predilection for bushmeats or wild meat, or the prevalence of wild or wet markets where wild animals are sold as food, it's very likely that such factors play roles in zoonotic transmission. In fact, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is thought to have originated in such a market, and bats and pangolins are among the animals who have been implicated as intermediate hosts for this virus. Regardless of its origin, we have seen several viruses with the potential to cause pandemics or worldwide spread. In fact, the term pandemic comes from the Greek pan, which means all, and demos, meaning people. Smallpox, influenza, HIV, and SARS-CoV-2 viruses have all risen to pandemic proportions. Others, such as Ebola and SARS, have not. The reasons why the latter have not generated pandemics are worthy of mention. You may have heard of SARS, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, also known as SARS-CoV-1, and this was identified during an outbreak in 2003. It never, however, rose to pandemic levels. Why? Well, for starters, public health efforts at containment were pretty effective. Additionally, however, some of the features of SARS helped out. The SARS genome made it less infective and conferred less stability to spike proteins. But what about SARS-CoV-2? It seems that the genome has key mutations which make the spike proteins more stable and the virus better adapted to its human host and also more infective. Okay, I realize that probably sounded a little depressing. However, there is hope. Many virologists believe that viruses tend to get less pathogenic as time wears on. After all, if the virus kills the host, it limits its own reservoir potential hosts. Thus, the strains of viruses which do survive tend to be less virulent. But how do we ultimately fight these pathogenic viruses? This leads me to a convenient segue, and I invite you, dear listeners, to listen on to part two of this episode, which is on vaccines. And so we've come to the end of our parable on pandemics, Are you feeling captivated by capsids? Or are you feeling somewhat visceral about virions? Whichever the case, I wish you, dear listeners, good health and safe harbors. This is Dr. Bill, signing off for now.